Welcome to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology Series. This podcast series is designed to help you explore the diversity and role of invertebrate life on this planet. You'll meet researchers from the School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Sciences and invertebrate curators from Australian museums. Today's episode is on crustaceans. Uh, everyone, you'll recognise um, we've got Alistair back again, and he's from your crustacean lectures this week, and also uh, Dr. Mark Brown. Um, Mark gave you guys the lecture this week on marine pollution. So we're just going to kick off with some questions for Alistair and for Mark, anything to do with the lectures or any of the lab content? Um, any of the lab content from this week, feel free to put your video on or your microphones on or type into the chat. Mark, before we heard you talking to Ian about some of the marine pollution research is starting to really get some traction going, could you tell us a bit more about some of your recent marine pollution research? Yeah, so the work that we've been doing recently is that we've um, a lot of astroturf pictures have been put in around Sydney. So we've recently reviewed the literature about what we know about that. The reason for that is that China's decided that they don't want any more plastic to come in to there and we were sending a lot of our waste there. And so the idea now is to try and put more and more products made of recycled plastic and that's causing a few issues. Um, so they're trying to understand with this general plastification what the issues could be. And it seems to impact a range of freshwater, marine and terrestrial organisms. Um, the work before that looked at what were the most abundant types of plastic in the oceans. We found that they were mostly polyester fibres and we were able to link that through washing and wearing your clothes through some sort of detective work and treating the environment as a crime scene and then looking at each of the polymers and then trying to work out where they came from. So places with more sewage gets more of these fibres um, mainly through when you launder your clothes and so we've set up some work with engineering where we've got a giant laundry mat and we spend our time washing clothes and measuring how many fibres come out of different types of polymers. And so the idea there is to try and look at how you mitigate the problem. Do you avoid certain polymers or products? Do you intercept them somehow using a filter? Or do you re-engineer to make the products more durable and less toxic? And so we try to use some of the physiological information about what the polymers do to particular organisms to try to make these products slightly better. So less clothes washing, eh? <laughs> Apparently so. Um, that, that was my question, Mark, is that um, given that, what are some things that we could do, some daily choices that we could make to reduce our impact on the environment or the amount of fibres or plastics that we're putting into the ocean? So for the fibres, it seems to be that when, if you wear woolen clothing, um, they seem to reduce, uh, put fewer fibres into the wash and into the sewage treatment process. Um, if you, we're not quite sure about what the natural fibres do to compared to the plastic fibres in terms of toxicity. Um, so we can't really give guidance there. The site issue is that wool fibres are used in slug pellets. And so they obviously have impacts on grazers. Um, and we know that plastic fibres can cause impacts to those types of organisms as well. Um, so it seems to be at the moment, wool clothing seems to be quite a useful one in terms of reducing emissions. Um, and then there's a range of filters that are on the market 
Um, but actually, when you look at how effective they are, is what we've been doing through the lockdown period. The best filter was only able to gather about 4% of the fibres that were emitted oh. from garments. And these are the polyester, which is what most of people's clothes are made out of. They work better for cotton fibres. Um, they have about 50% for those. But for the things that they're supposed to be designed for, they don't work particularly well. So natural fibres seem to be better in terms of reducing emissions, and they're also caught more by some of these filters for the appliances but we've still got a long way to go which I suppose is what most scientists always says. <laughs> yeah which marine organisms are the most impacted by plastic accumulation trying to find that out at the moment so we've got a few projects that um, that uh, are looking at that aspect one of them is looking at what where they accumulate in the food web and so we're trying to see if they accumulate or magnify within those we think at the moment some of the filter feeders might have slightly more, um, but we've yet to go through all the samples. So that sort of work has been looking at Sydney Harbour. It's been looking at places with large numbers of people and sparse numbers of people with and without drains present, and then looking at replicate types of taxa at each of those trophic levels, primary producers, grazers, filter feeders and predators and looking at where it accumulates and we're still processing the samples on that and if students wish to help on that process we're more than willing to accept that help but it seems to be we're finding a lot of polyester um, in the gum in the actual types of organisms and it's just trying to work out exactly where they accumulate and if it causes them any problems it might be that it's completely benign and doesn't do anything to them but some of the initial work to date with some of the plastic fibers certainly seems to suggest it causes some inflammatory responses or some fibrotic responses. And some organisms can die, but it's whether or not the concentrations that they're exposing them to in the toxicity experiments are larger than what's actually found naturally. Um, how far, you mentioned areas that have a lot of sewage import is where you pick it up, but how far away do you find that signal? Does it actually stretch quite away from humans? It does seem to suggest, um, and that could obviously be an environmental process that's causing that, either wind or you know, currents and those sorts of things. The difficulty that we've had is that these fibres are, are obviously on the clothes of researchers who are going to sample the areas. And so yeah. we don't know if we're doing a bit of an OJ Simpson whereby we're contaminating the crime scene. <laughs> so a lot of the work has been trying to work out how we sort of um, deal with that procedural contamination but we certainly find them from the poles to the equator from the depths of the ocean right the way through to the mountains and in, even in the airstream um it's just yeah trying to work out how we deal with it really to link that through to crustaceans there was a, a recent uh, deep sea species of amphipod that was named after you know the fact that they found plastic pollution um, and this is an animal that lives in the very, very, very deep, you know, trenches in the deep ocean. And so it's actually, a, you know, really quite sad story that our, you know, impacts of pollution are reaching, you know, arguably some of the most remote parts of the planet. Um, so if you want to connect back mm -hmm. to crustaceans, that's a, that's a good example. It's in incredible that what's really pristine is an interesting question if we can pick up plastic pollution that far away in 
you know, small crustaceans, what is pristine in marine environment? I think so. I mean, the crustaceans are really interesting because of the, the way that they feed and that some of the early work showed that they're able to break some of the larger particles of plastic down um, through sort of um, their methods of sort of feeding. Um, the issue there is whether or not the particles come out or whether or not they accumulate. Um, so some of the work that we showed that when mussels, for instance, are able to consume small particles of plastic, they're able to transfer from the stomach of the organism. Um, it would be interesting to see if that was happening in some of the, um, you know, some of these sort of amphipods and things. It's difficulties trying to be able to um, look in those tissues for those very small organisms. So you have to have very good skills being able to take a blood sample or being able to section them. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly interesting to try and take a, a, a blood sample out of a, a prawn. I used to do that in my masters. Actually, I was looking at the the hemocytes in prawns, the blood cells, and yeah, spent a couple of years taking very small blood samples out of a lot of prawns. <laughs> were you were you taking that through the through the heart or through? Uh, no, when you turn them up upside down underneath. Underneath one of the, the pleopods, you can actually see um, a part of there that connects through to the heart and you can inject into there and, and get about 200 microliters out without killing the prawn. That's very impressive. That's yeah. a large volume. <laughs> yeah. Some organisms, we'd only ever have to get 50 or 10 microliters out and we were quite yeah. happy with that. So This was um, up at prawn farms in North Queensland. So the prawns were, you know, like this big. I um I used to end up trading prawns because the farmers would give us prawns after we were up there sampling and uh, from their, their harvest and stuff. And so I'd come back to, to uni and trade prawns for beer because I just couldn't eat them anymore. <laughs> I had eaten so many. <laughs> this is arguably the most delicious group of invertebrates that we're going to cover in the course. Really. Yes. What is it a rule that you have to at some point eat your study organism? Yeah. <laughs> Unofficial rule of marine biology. Yeah. At the time, my partner was working on giant clams and you can actually eat the abductor muscle in giant clams. Yeah. It's absolutely delicious. So, yeah, we were, you know, living the high life until we couldn't eat them anymore, prawns and giant clam abductor muscle. <laughs> I, th I think what I've found is that some of the organisms that we sample for some of the um, slightly more degraded areas around sewage outfalls or stormwater mm. outfalls, once they've been in the fridge for a bit, they have a sort of aroma and it's difficult to sometimes separate that from the um, eating a fresh one that's sort of much nicer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I definitely can't eat prawns anymore. I, I just have two dinner party tricks. I can I can tell you the, the boys from the girls and I can show you how to take a blood sample. <laughs> that's it. It seems to be quite important understanding the basic biology and ecology <laughs> of organisms to be able to answer the applied questions yeah. and being able to take samples from the environment or from the organisms to look at these physiological processes. It's yeah, exactly. Work out those, the sublethal effects are really hard to determine when you don't, like if you just know a bit about the biology, it, it gets complicated to work out things like you're saying how much plastic can we handle or can these organisms handle? You have to really know what their normal, healthy, functional biology is. Yeah, and which sort of level of biological organisation that you decide to sort of look at. The, the the mechanisms are quite interesting. We get a lot of insights from medical researchers because 
<laughs> they've had this biocompatibility field for for a long time, whereby they put plastic devices into humans and they look at um, how the physiological process is disrupted. And we test a lot of our sort of pathways of impact based on medical information about, you know, the inflammatory process or the scar tissue that forms or how that affects the the DNA functions in terms of how they unwind and how cells split. So for your research, do we, is it necessary now to determine what's acceptable level of plastic accumulation? You know, do we have to work out that toxicity level? I think so. Yes. Yeah, and it's trying to, we normally try to function if something's causing an ecological impact first, and then we work backwards from the organisms that we, um, where there's, information about those demonstrated impacts and so for some pollutants we we have quite useful information for metals for some of the um, anti-foulants that were painted on boats there's some inf- and oil there's some information about population level impacts for plastics we lack that a bit and so there's a bit of a tendency to work bottom up to look at the biological effects but what that means you get lots of papers where they expose various organisms to bits of plastic and I don't know whether it moves our knowledge on an awful lot. If we're able to identify an ecological impact and work back, as you know, the physiological measurements are quite difficult in an organism. So having a, an ecological basis to do that from, I think is, is probably a, quite a fruitful approach and probably less um, harmful for the organisms that we put in the yeah. toxicity experiments. Alistair, how hard is that in the crustaceans to work out those ecological impacts? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, that Mark's point that it's really important to understand the basic biology here is critical because one thing hopefully the students got from the lectures is that crustaceans have the most remarkable diversity of form and function and body shapes and feeding modes. And there is absolutely almost anything you can imagine from parasites to predators to deposit feeders to filter feeders, you know, so if you're trying to predict the impact of a pollutant, then you clearly need to understand, you know, where it lives and what it eats. Um, so crustaceans are very common models in ecotoxicology. They're almost like lab rats for aquatic toxicology. So people maintain cultures of, of planktonic organisms or they maintain cultures of uh, small amphipods and they routinely run them through uh, standard ecological tests for sediments and for water quality. Um, but if you want to convert those lab ecotoxicology tests into predictions in the field, then you really need to know whether those things would have been exposed to those uh, stresses in the first place. Uh, so with I had a student a uh, while back, uh, supervised with Emma Johnson, who's now our Dean of Science, and we looked at small crustaceans in Sydney Harbour, uh, but not the ones that live in sediments where a lot of the pollution work was done, but ones that live in the seagrass and algal beds. And so they never encounter the sediments. They don't live down in the, in the sand and the mud. They live up in the canopy of these algal beds. Um, but they could still be exposed to the pollutants that we get in Sydney Harbour because uh, brown algae actually accumulate heavy metals into their tissues. And so these animals are being exposed to pollutants through their food, not through the water necessarily. Uh, so by eating the seaweeds, they were acu- um, being exposed to metals that the, the brown seaweeds were were um, uh, accumulating. Uh, so predicting any of those impacts depends on knowing, you know, what habitat they're living in. Is it sediment? Is it seaweed? Is it plankton? And what are they eating? Are they eating plankton? Are they filter feeding sediments? Are they you know, taking 
material out of the water column. Uh, so you can't convert any of those lab ecotox things into real-world predictions until you, you know those sort of basic biological attributes. Also relevant to those ideas we are just talking about, about bioaccumulation, you know, it's just how long do these things live? Like you could, you could be interested in how long a, you know, a, a small copepod or amphipod bioaccumulates something, but in a few weeks' time, it's back to being detritus because it's really short-lived. So it's not really accumulating the material in, in biomass for very long, uh, but something like a big crab or lobster might live for decades uh, and enter fisheries where people would consume those organisms and they've been potentially accumulating materials for a long time. I think the general consensus is that crustaceans don't accumulate materials to the same degree that things like filter feeding bivalves do. Um, so they're less of a health risk, um, but I'm sure there's lots and lots of examples where that's not, not properly understood. Yeah. Um, Hannah's asks if there are examples of um, wild marine organisms dying from plastic toxicity. There are for larger bits of plastic, so that we know for fishing gear, for instance, um, that, that can smother areas and that can cause impacts. Um, smaller bits of plastic we know less about and that the organisms are more likely to encounter it. Um, uh, jo uh, James has also asked, what is the relationship between crustaceans and insects? Alistair, uh, you mentioned in your lecture, classification had been revised. Can you follow up on that? Good question, James. So. Um, insects are crustaceans is probably the best way to think about this. Um, so obviously the, the taxonomy, like their four subphyla of the arthropods, you know, the chalicerates, the myriapods, the crustaceans and the insects, that doesn't actually ref reflect our understanding of those relationships now. Um, so it's now well established that the insects are actually a, an evolutionary lineage that's nested within the crustaceans. So if you draw an evolutionary tree of all crustaceans from the most recent uh, common ancestor, then that tree will have a branch in it that are insects. Uh, so it's, obviously we still use the, you know, uh, the different subphyla uh, as, as sort of common names, but insects are certainly now considered to be essentially highly derived crustaceans. I think I gave an uh, evolutionary tree in one of the slides that shows that how they relate to the other parts, the other um, crustacean groups and also, sorry, the other arthropod groups within that relationship. And so that, that understanding has come about in recent years through, through the use of um, you know, molecular techniques to understand in relationships. It's a really nice opportunity, it seems there, Alistair, that actually you've got these types of organisms that occur across marine, freshwater and terrestrial mm. areas. You know, we sometimes think of those as separate areas, don't we? We have marine biologists, we have terrestrial ecologists, freshwater biologists, freshwater. And actually some of these processes occur across those. I can think of like sewage or stormwater that could be, you know, it could find its way into different habitats depending on how it's managed. And some of the effects could be quite general in terms of what they do to particular types of organisms, or they could be quite particular in terms of about the interaction of how the types of organisms in the environment where they accumulate um, could cause those issues. So it's quite fascinating when you've got, you know, a sort of a class like that, that you're able to look at some of those um, general generalities of issues. Yeah, I think, I think it's a great idea if you're in first year, second year, third year, not to constrain your thinking to any particular environment. Um, you know, I've done most of my work in marine sciences, as have you and Tracy. Um, 
but I, I'm equally interested in insects or spiders or mm. birds or all sorts of things. And I think it's a shame if you constrain your interest to just one area because you're not at this stage you're not quite certain what you'll end up being really really interested in um, and and a lot of the processes are, are similar so if, you know if you're interested in ecotoxicology you know and you work in lakes you might the experimental designs might be absolutely identical to the sort of things you do in the ocean you might use some of the relatives of the same groups of animals so freshwater amphipods for example are one of the lab rats for for aquatic toxicology work right around the world, um, but the sort of experiments you'd run would look absolutely identical if you did a, you know, thing with marine amphipods. Uh, then it's not not that different. Hannah's asked Mark if you had unlimited funds, how would you clean up ocean to get rid of plastics? This is also <laughs> a really good question. If anyone's been following the controversy around the ocean cleanup uh, company, you know that startup company that proposed, you know, going out there and scooping all the ocean uh, you know the surface of the ocean for plastic apparently they extracted tens of millions of dollars out of all sorts of you know young wealthy tech people um but then people being they're being criticized recently on twitter as basically having invented fishing (laughs) (laughs) they're just going to run a trawl across the ocean and collect stuff um and so that's been been quite controversial and when you think of you know you only have to think of how big the ocean is and how big one net is to, to worry, to think about that. But um, Mark, if you want to address that question. Yeah, I mean, it's a massive source of frustration, isn't it? There's, um, there's people that are trained up to be able to deal with these particular issues and then a, a very plucky young man comes along with an idea and he's able to, you know, get a lot of the money. The difficulty, I think, is, as you rightly said, Alice, is the cost-benefit analysis of it, lots of quite a large expense. Does it actually reduce the problem? Some of the issues have been that the oceanographers have convinced everyone that the plastic accumulates in the middle of the ocean when actually most of the waste is closer to land, if not on land. And so most of the methods to mitigate an issue and for pollution, it's either you avoid something, you intercept it, or you re-engineer the original product. They're closer to home. So we're trying to look at preventative strategies, you know, avoiding certain types of materials intercepting them at the stormwater stage or the sewage stage, which is what we do with some of the work with Melbourne water or South Australia water, or trying to re-engineer the products so that they're actually more durable and less toxic. And that latter point is really based on physiological ideas that they've had in the medical area for some time around the, the biological compatibility of products and trying to make them more durable and less toxic through time. So major problems of adding hernia meshes and um, artificial joints into people. They got legislation in which said said that these materials, these products had to be made better. And then they've been able to engage the scientists in that process with the engineers to make better products. And I think that's probably what we want to do is have more durable and less toxic products that can be continually reused or recycled into the same products. But at the moment, I think a lot of material is finding from waste bottles and it's going into fleeces. And some of those can have very large emissions into the environment, even when I've been guilty of that myself, when I wear a fleece and do some field work. So, It, it was interesting you talked about using recycled plastics in different applications and then that having a flow-on negative environmental effect. Um, is that a big challenge now then for how do we recycle and reuse better? 
it is a massive problem. Australia's got the most advanced laws on the planet for waste. So they actually, unlike Europe and North America, they classify all polymers, natural or plastic, as water pollutants, if they can get in by wind and stormwater or rain. So they actually, the problem has been in North America and in Europe, they've not had that classification. So they've not been able to apply laws for managing um, pollution to those particular types of polymers. But what Australia has been doing is they've been copying what's been happening in Europe and the US, but the laws are very different. And actually the ideas of incorporating plastic into, you know, roads, which is what happens in Waverley or into buildings uh, or into, you know, new types of downcycled products has been that actually there are odds with the laws in Australia about um, not being able to have polymers that can be blown or washed into the environment. And so that's the essence of the debate around the, ast the AstroTurf pitches is that actually they're putting these in places with drainage channels and they're using polymers that are defined as pollutants. And so that's where the battleground is being drawn on that one. The difficulty, I suppose, would be from a, 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 an overall standpoint is are the impacts from a plastic pitch significantly smaller or larger than those from a natural pitch? You know, a natural pitch might have, you know, grass and things, but that might be a non-native grass. It might require large amounts of nutrients and large amounts of pesticides to keep it in its function. So I think those sorts of debates require scientists to be involved because they're quite complex. Yeah, that's, that's such an interesting point because thinking about astroturf versus natural turf, it's kind of like damned if you do, damned if you don't, that there's pros and cons to each. And so I guess, yeah, I guess what you're saying is the value of scientists is weighing out which one has the lesser impact. It seems to be so, yeah. And I think it's just trying to get them in, involved and engaged. I think the difficulty has been, as what Alistair alluded to earlier, is that we get some, um, we can get particular people who are from a media background or from a, you know, an engineering background can suggest ideas. But unless you have the collaboration with, you know, scientists from different viewpoints, you can come up with a solution that, you know, I, okay, we're going to intercept all this material in the environment. And the plastic producers love that because they can keep on producing and they don't have to change their products. But actually it might be that some of those other types of products do need to be changed. And the issues that what you're talking about with the pitches is a classic one because it could be that natural pitches have large impacts that we're not sure about. It's, um, it's interesting that um, mindset around solutions, isn't it? In so many fields now, I think what's coming up is that there's not a fixed solution. That's a point of science. You, you, you keep getting better and learning more and then you use that and apply that back to the solution. So instead of looking for one solution, we need to look at lots of different solutions and how they work together and we just keep improving. I think so. That seems to be a real positive point about UNSW, isn't it, that we have a lot of people from different disciplines who come together on particular issues. There was a an article recently about heat waves, you know, we had some of the physical oceanographers interacting with ecologists, you know, to understand what types of impacts are. So I think those collaborations are really useful. Certainly the ones we have with engineers are, are very useful too. Nice. Um, we've got a question here from James. 
Uh, I hope I pronounced this right, actually. Why is eusociality almost exclusively a terrestrial phenomenon? Why are there so few marine examples? Yeah, good question. So for a while it was thought that, I mean, so eusocial arthropods are super abundant on land. When you think of ants, termites, bees and wasps. Um, and for a long time it was it was always a curiosity as to why none of the marine arthropods were had those similar sorts of social structures. Um, relatively recently, people started to study these sponge shrimps um, and discovered they did live like that. They had a queen, they'd defend the colony, um, they had, you know, sterile workers. Um, but it is, an, it is an odd example and there's not lots of other ones. Um, I'm actually not sure why, why, whether it's anything about the terrestrial versus the marine environment that explains that. But also when you think about it, it's not, it hasn't actually evolved that many times on land either. If you imagine that all of the termites, uh, you know, are derived from a, from a single eusocial ancestor. So there's been a couple of examples in, in terrestrial arthropods where that life history has has evolved and then those groups have become enormously successful and radiate a lot. Um, I don't, I'm not that familiar with the literature to know how often eusociality has arisen, um, but the, the risk that I guess the thing I'm, point I'm trying to make is that we think there's lots of it, but because it's because there's very, very many species in the handful of groups where that has evolved. Um, so ants are super diverse, bees and wasps, the hymenoptera, one of the, the super diverse groups of orders of of arthropods. There's a few other rare examples like um, I think there's some maybe the things called web spinners. There's a couple of other ins uh, odd little insect groups that have have some of those sort of life histories. Um, but it's yeah it's it's a prominent because some of the groups that have that are, are very very diverse. Um, but I'm not so I'm not sure it's a marine versus terrestrial thing. It's probably more explained by the fact that um, the groups that have really radiated and have that uh, life history become very successful were already on land. Going back to that question of you know crustacean insects being crustaceans, um, the other curious uh, sort of finding in recent times that that uh, relates to uh, you know new molecular evidence is that termites are actually cockroaches. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. So obviously not relating to our crustacean lecture, but. It's now known that termites are actually a highly derived lineage that sits within within the cockroach order. So, nice. side side issue. But um, actually, related to Pre Jed's next question, which is, uh, do we know how many times crustaceans have independently invaded terrestrial environments, Alistair? Uh, so, <laughs> so what? Is, so the most common. So we have obviously terrestrial um, isopods are the most diverse group. So. Slaters, pill bugs, and the like. There are terrestrial amphipods, so land hoppers. Um, so that's a group we see commonly on the seashore. If you click over some seaweed, you'll see lots of sort of semi-terrestrial amphipods. Um, but they go right up into moist forest environments as well. Uh, we also have terrestrial crabs of various types, um, and we have freshwater crabs that have gone into freshwater environments. Um, we have what else we've got? Some of the some of the yabbies and and uh, lobsters are actually they're most you know they're in streams and swamps and the like, but they actually some of those are quite terrestrial. They'll climb over over paddocks and have burrows that are quite some distance from land. Um, and I think there's terrestrial copepods as well that you can get in in um, 
you know, moist leaf litter. Uh, so quite a few groups have done that. I guess the striking thing is that they've never diversified in the way that you've seen the other terrestrial arthropods. You know, so the insects have diversified to, you know, beyond belief and the the chelicerate spiders and scorpions and mites have diversified enormously. Um, so, you know, it, it is one of the sort of big divides in arthropod evolution, how mm-hmm. um, certain groups have enormously diversified on land, and that's obviously the insects and the chelicerates, and the crustaceans remained almost entirely aquatic. Uh, but there's a handful of examples where they've invaded land. Have some of those been from um, farming processes? I remember chatting to sort of Tracy earlier, I remember doing some work with the EPA in the UK on Pastafasticus lanisculus, which is like this sort of signal crayfish they have now a lot, which is like a blue crayfish that they have yeah. um, in their noise. Yeah, some of the invasive species do get moved around by human activities. So I think there's, I mean, the common slater in your garden in Sydney is invasive. Oh, is it? Uh, yeah, so the most common slater is is um, not native and the most common uh, the little shiny pill bugs, uh, the grey grey um, armadillians from Portugal. Um, so they would have come in probably with with um, you know gardening material. Um, speaking about independent evolution, um, <laughs> if one of the really interesting things that have come out in the last year or so, and it's actually it generated a whole bunch of memes on the internet. If you're following, if you're following the sort of invertebrate nerd Twitter is the fact that crab, the crab body shape has actually independently involved lots of times. And so there's there's all these interesting memes going about around about everything turning into a crab. Um, and it makes it a little bit hard for us to learn invertebrate biology because you look at something, oh, that's a crab. It's got that crab body shape, but there's all sorts of different independent lineages of crustaceans that look like a crab. Uh, so the background of Tracy from at the moment, the Yeti crab, um, that's really quite unrelated to the other crabs you might get on the seashore. Um, so that's a type of squat lobster, uh, which are in a different group entirely. Um, and there are things called false crab, hermit crabs are not particularly closely related to other crabs. Um, so there's lots and lots of stories around, I look, you know, I think it's, it's maybe about 10 or 12 different independent evolutionary events that have turned things into into that sort of crab body shape, which makes it hard for us to learn the basic groups of crustaceans. Um, but it's also totally fascinating that, you know, lots and lots of times you've seen this convergent evolution to that body form, and it's really successful. Do they have an idea of the processes that are occurs, occurring in the environment that, could, that are likely responsible for that type of body plan coming out? I mean, there might be a mobility one. So if you look at so crabs, you know, the abdominal region's greatly reduced. It's tucked underneath. I mean, a crab is much more mobile on land than, if you, than something like a lobster or a yabby. Um, so it could be a relative to mobility. Um, no, we probably have to read that. There's a recent paper that actually mapped out how many times things have become crabs, and um, we'll need to read that one. The other point I made in the lectures that does make it really challenging to learn the diversity of crustaceans, uh, apart from the way, you know, where we... We use common names like crab. Um, the common name shrimp is just completely unhelpful. Um, there must be about 25 different unrelated groups of crustaceans that we call shrimps. You know, brine shrimps, clam shrimps, fairy shrimps, mud shrimps, actual shrimps. Um, so 
if you get confused, just go back to those opening tables at the start of your manual to try and work out where things fit. But I, we completely acknowledge that trying to get a handle on the diversity of crustaceans in a, in a week is, is hard. Um, but there are some common groups that you want to be familiar with. It's pretty hard to be a marine biologist without encountering crustaceans of various sorts. Yeah. Um, but it is, the diversity is crazy. From, from the student's standpoint, like given the broad diversity you're on exam, like are there any giveaway characteristics or things that would stand out? Yeah, I mean, you can look, there are obviously defining features of that, that subphylum that distinguish it from the chelicerates and the insects and the myriapods. So remember two pairs of antennae, uh, you know, a long body region with lots of appendages that's so the insects and the chelicerates are actually really similar to each other when you think about it. All the insects have head, thorax, abdomen, six pairs of legs, not much variation. <laughs> the crustaceans have all sorts of different arrangements with different numbers of legs and arrangement uh, and appendages. The spiders uh, and the other chelicerates also quite constrained. A prosoma, a pistosoma, eight pairs of walking legs, not much variation. Um, so go back, there are obviously the defining features of the groups that, that make it relatively easy to pull them apart. The challenge is once, you know, from that starting point, crustaceans have just gone in so many different directions. So you'll see a crab, you know, which has got 10 walking legs and a whole bunch of other appendages. But then you might also, there are crustaceans which look like a, you know, parasitic forms that look like a little blob of undistinguished tissue that you, you could scarcely recognise as anything. Um, so the, the diversity does become a challenge. Um, but I think some of the basic features uh, you can separate from the other arthropod groups without too much challenge. And that's obviously where the molecular techniques really help some of these traditional methods. I mean, we have issues to do with the class. We don't have a, a robust system for classifying different types of polymers. So the textile engineers use one system, the chemists use another at least in you know and so it's actually quite refreshing to see those sorts of issues in ecology and biology that we have these debates about whether or not we should use structural features whether or not we should use you know molecular features yeah and some and some of the really big questions about animal evolution are, are still unresolved so there's constant there's a constant debate about the events that gave rise basically right at the start of animal life you know how are sponges related to the cnidarians, related to the comb jellies? So if you go right back to the start of the course where we start to introduce the most, uh, the earliest animal groups, people are still not quite certain about the relative relationships of sponges versus cnidarians versus comb jellies, the, the, you know, the, those oldest and most uh, you know, primitive of the animal groups. And, and the nice, even though you might think, oh, that's confusing, we don't know anything, I actually don't mind that because what it means is that this is how science works. You know, new information comes to the table. People put it back and combine it with previous information. You get a better understanding uh, and things proceed that way. So confusion is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a, it's an evidence that the process of science just keeps on, you know, getting new information from different areas. Uh, and there's been such a revolution in how we use molecular genetic data in the last you know, a couple of decades that it's not surprising that we learn new things. Nice. Um, Stella's asked a, a really good question. Um, what would be the development of barnacles to evolve a sessile adult form? So one of, 
I mean, you've seen I did across put this a challenge. course, you've seen a whole collection of invertebrates that are sessile. So start to think about what's the common feature of, of those. So if you're a coral, a sponge, a bryozoan, a hydroid, what are they doing? Nearly all of them are, are filter feeders. You know, they're able to take food out of their environment uh, and and persist just by living in one place. And the reason that the reason that they can do that is that the ocean, it, it actually comes down to water density. Like water is so dense that it holds a lot of food. Um, so there's enough food just floating around in the ocean for animals to to be sessile and get enough resources. When you think try now compare that to terrestrial environments, almost nothing is sessile. You have to go hunting. You can't, there's just not enough food in a meter squared of air for animals to, to live. Um, so being sessile is actually, you've seen repeatedly throughout the course, that's a pretty good life history strategy if you uh, uh, you know have a feeding mode that's just extracting food out of the water column. Food is brought to you. <laughs> yeah, food's brought to you. Obviously, um, there's lots of mobile things where, you know, so it's not, it's not necessarily better than other things, but it's a perfectly viable life history strategy in areas where there's a lot of food in, in the water. The only, there are a few sessile invertebrates on land, um, so things like scale insects that live on, on plants and just suck, you know, basically suck sap. Um, they've got enough food, they can just stay in one spot. Um, you could also argue that a spider on a web is a, is a sort of passive, you know, filter feeder. Uh, but again, then they're relying on some extra tricks to get, get that food out of a particular volume of air. Um, so I don't know the answer necessarily for for barnacles, what, what was the actual trigger for that, but what I'd like you to think about is what is common about all of the different invertebrate groups that you've seen throughout the session that are sessile. It's pretty hard to be a sessile predator. You could sit in a burrow and try and catch things, uh, but mostly the sessile organisms are, are filter feeders. We've seen it with corals, sponges, bryozoans, lots of the lots of other cnidarians. Um, there's probably more that I can't remember at the moment. Yeah, we, we find that the sessile animals quite useful for pollution issues because you can actually identify spatial and temporal patterns. So things like barnacles, you can also do transplants. You can transplant them from a polluted area to a clean area and vice versa to see if they get better or worse. So from a from those sort of applied angles, they're actually quite useful things, and barnacles in particular are quite interesting things because they actually their biology is very well known, and they have this diverse form, so it allows you to identify the types of features that could be causing accumulations and not, you know, which are used for the taxonomy. And just just when we thought we knew everything, and which makes it just to make it hard to teach, people have recently shown that barnacles actually move around. <laughs> <laughs> so. One of the huge challenges with teaching invertebrate biology is all the exceptions. And so, you know, barnacles are sessile, they're stuck to the rock, but uh, someone just showed that barnacles that live on turtle shells are actually able to sort of slide around the surface and they move around. I'll put a link in the chat. Um, so the danger with teaching this sort of stuff is that the class goes away thinking barnacles move around all the time, uh, but in fact, you know, barnacles are 99.99% you know, stuck to the rock and not going anywhere. Um, but there's often some pretty interesting exceptions to those to those examples. 
Alistair, you've been involved in this course for a, a long time. If there's one thing that you would want students this year to be able to discuss about invertebrate biology, what would that be? One thing. I'm kind of hoping they get more than one. Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think I've made this point a few weeks ago. What I what I want to see from you know a bunch of biology students is that passion for the group. You know, I'd like if you're challenged by so my question is almost if Tracy gave you that question, you should have something ready to go, or if you're you know you, you end up in a radio interview about you know marine biology or or whatever or you're speaking to your family members about why science is interesting, then you want to have examples ready to go for the importance of these animals for whatever particular thing is, is your passion. So we've spent a lot of time today talking about how interesting, uh, how we can use invertebrates to understand pollution and ecotoxicology and impacts. So that might be the avenue you take. You think, okay, I've got all these examples stored up about how we can use invertebrates for pollution monitoring or understanding impacts. Um, but if you're completely uninterested in pollution and you're really interested in animal evolution or or vision or, you know, animal behaviour or something else, again, store up those examples so that you can be enthusiastic about a particular group of animals um, to, uh, you know, to, and then that gives people value. They can see why you'd bring them. They could see why you'd bother conserving them. If, if people can't make that link, then there's not going to be any interest. Why conserve things that you can't understand or can, can't see the value of? I remember a while ago, Alistair, there was that incident of the of the um, people having blood drawn from them and you were on the news. Yeah, that, this was my, my 15 seconds of fame in, in the Australian media. I think I may have had a slide in the lectures around that. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, there was an example in Melbourne a few years back where a teenage boy was sort of wading in the shallows of Port Phillip Bay and came out completely covered in blood um, and his legs were just all covered in bites and he ended up having to go to hospital. Um, and it turned out it was actually some amphipods that normally feed on decomposing fish material. Um, but it caused a big stir and there was, you know, stuff on the news and, um, and then again, stories all around the world about this, you know, attack of the killer amphipods type stuff. It was a, it was quite a bit of fun, but um, I'm not, I can't think, I don't think I can remember another example ever where something of, as obscure as little <laughs> amphipods made the pub, made the news. Um, and actually, I actually went on live ABC News to talk about it. You know, it was, it was the, a big event for like half a day. <laughs> All my students made fun of me because I made a joke on television about, you know, they, how the, the student, the, the teenager should have swum faster. Alistair, <laughs> 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 oh, let me ask you the question that um, Hannah asked um, Mark earlier. If you had unlimited funding or resources, what would you, what research question would you put at the top of the list that you had to put all that? that funding and resource into I mean I think in the spot <laughs> yeah it does yeah, sort of do you answer that in terms of what would be most valuable or what you'd like to do yeah. I'm not sure I'd spend the world's money's <laughs> research money on amphipods but I'd love to um, <laughs> oh, I think I think understand trying to understand and mitigate habitat loss 
you know, is is the absolute striking thing for me. Obviously, there's a huge amount of um, huge amount of attention at the moment on you know losing of sort of climate change, uh, but one of the huge issues around that is that it changes the habitats in which you know organisms are living, and that's what really supports biodiversity. Um, so you can do all sorts of lab studies to show that a you know point one increase in temperature changes you know the physiology of some little critter. Um, but who cares if you're just losing the entire reef or you lose the entire kelp forest? I mean, those sorts of changes just take out enormous, you know, biodiversity invertebrates. Um, so studying the conservation of habitats would be is key to for me because um, that's what where the, any changes to those just result in huge number of changes to all the things that we we can't actually don't actually have time to measure. Um, so yeah. given that invertebrate communities are so diverse. You have to assume we're never going to do enough science to understand the biology of all the little critters that live in them. And this is especially true for invertebrates. How, you know, about a third of our terrestrial invertebrates in Australia are not even described. Uh, you can do the maths about how long that would take and how many taxons we've got. We're never going to get there. Um, but we also, but we can make some pretty good predictions now that if you, you know, remove that forest, you're going to affect the things that live in it. Um, so focus on habitat is my would be my key. Yep. Mm. Um, Hannah's just asked, Alistair, on that why is habitat loss not on the general public's radar compared to awareness about climate change? Yeah, um, I think it is for some, you know, it is for certain organisms, not others. So, you know, if you were working in koala conservation, you'd be able to make a pretty clear case for that. I think it's it's a harder one for a lot of the sort of invertebrate biodiversity and other things we're interested in. It's I mean, it's possibly because climate change is just going to trump all those things and make make everything you know seem less relevant. There was a period like if you think about science funding in in Australia, there was a period not that long ago where it was all about biodiversity. Um, but think conservation uh, attention it 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 goes in there's fashions. It literally things become interesting, less interesting, go away. Trying to get grants up now that are purely biodiversity fund, you know, focused is actually really challenging. Uh, but getting something that is about, you know, mitigating climate is is more likely. So it's a, it reflects human interest in in what they think is, you know, damaging, threatening as much as what is actually threatening. I mean, I suppose the, the classic example is this sort of the foreshore in Sydney Harbour. You know, it's been changed into these artificial structures with the seawalls and things, and actually. Mm you get a massive area of shoreline that's compressed to this, you know, much smaller area and has made large changes. And that's one of the parts that I often feel guilty about is that I work on, you know, bits of, you know, plastic in the environment. And actually, if you look at some of the evidence where they've done the population modeling to see which, where most of the stresses are coming from, it comes from things like habitat loss in those particular areas. And so, you know, worrying about a few bits of plastic in an organism might not be, the bit to focus on and that's part of the concern that we have about people suggesting you should go to the middle of the ocean to clean things up when we're not doing something about you know huge areas of habitat that are being changed and that that's not going to be able to support the levels of biodiversity on them and climatic change I think causes a lot of that habitat loss. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the focus on plastics is an example of you know it's a there's been a lot of attention on that area for good reasons but it doesn't mean that all the other things that were previously the focus of attention have gone away. 
Um, so if you go back in time, there would have been a period where it was all about, you know, heavy metals in the harbour and then go back in time, it would have all been about, you know, petrochemical pollution or sewage or, you know, so, you know, things change in, in focus and attention due to, due to sort of funding sources and people's interest. But um, in many cases, it doesn't get rid of the previous threats. When you look at those issues, that actually there's, it sooner or later comes around the issue of, you know, which causes the ecological impact, which reduces the biodiversity, you know, which then relates to why it's important to look at those, you know, large scale things first rather than what's the current fad, you know, for the pollutant wise. Yeah. The, um, the Living Seawall Project, though, is also a, a good example of communication around habitat loss and that kind of overlapping of, of a passion about something and a problem because, I mean, it's been, it was a finalist in the Earthshot Prize and it's about restoring habitat for invertebrates, which then flows onto vertebrates um, around seawalls and um, and urban developments. And I mean, that, that's to do with habitat loss. Yeah, I, I love this project because it's... Yeah. You know, there's a clear problem. You know, we we create so many, you know, built environments around our cities that are not very good for supporting biodiversity. Um, so the, the Sydney Harbour is a good example. It's more, I think it's more than 50% of the, the shore is basically a vertical, you know, sandstone or concrete wall. And so that's rubbish habitat for most invertebrates. Um, you always get you nearly always get higher diversity when you've got complex structures, different mixes of vertical and horizontal, all sorts of nooks and crannies for things to hide in. Uh, and so what the team at Living Seawalls have done is basically to engineer a solution there and to, to bring that complexity back onto seawalls. Sea and they've done it in this sort of modular concrete blocks that then um, can be put in all sorts of places. And then they've successfully convinced, I think there's about 40 harbours around the world now that have basically following the same model. Um, so it's, it, it does a biodiversity, you know, impact. It's improving biodiversity. But it's also, it's a simple idea that you can sell to people well. It doesn't, it, you know, some conservation ideas get sort of caught up in their complexity and it's hard for people to latch on to. But that's one where, you know, the solution is just sitting there in front of the people's faces and they, and they latch on to it. And so it's got, so then it has a really nice educational aspect as well. You can teach people around about the importance of habitat um, through that process. Um, so that's a you know, particularly useful, you know, combination of sort of easy, easy to sell idea. Um, you can do it. And the results are uh, so far have been very, very positive. Yeah, and some of the major advances have been like, you know, the seawalls were featureless. So they didn't have things like rock pools. And actually, when you're able to add a rock pool habitat onto them, you get the organisms in there. And Crabs. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. You know, I remember convincing a flower pot manufacturer to try trap on walls and they improved the levels of biodiversity by, you know, by over 300% within a matter of months. So, I think there's engineering and science scenarios are, are really useful opportunities to explore science. But it's Just before we leave that point, the, the awards that Tracy was mentioning were a thing called the Earthshot Awards. Um, so the Living Seawalls Project, which includes uh, our colleague Mariana Mayapinto and other colleagues at Macquarie University, um, was one of the three finalists in the sort of ocean solutions category. And it was a prize that's been, was set up um, by, 
by Prince William, I think, and his and the and the royal uh, royal house. Um, they didn't win the prize, uh, but they're one of only three finalists globally for that that category. So we're super proud of them. Um, I put out a challenge on the uh, discussion board to come and stump your lecturer with the questions. So. Have you guys got any more challenging questions? Alex has mentioned around how brine shrimp eggs can oh, sorry. survive for so long. I don't know. I don't know what how, uh, but I know they can. <laughs> so, um, so I guess there is quite a few invertebrates that you can pretty much dry them out, and they last for ages. Um, so, again, try to link this through to their life histories. So, brine shrimps and a few of the other inland well, I say freshwater crustaceans, but they're mostly actually in saline inland waterways. They have these life histories where the, they can persist for a very long time and the egg stage is completely dry, and then you just add, add water and, you, and they can re-emerge back to, to the adult stages. And so that, work, that life history works really well if, if your water supply is very, very unpredictable. Um, so, you, you know, you can just, they might persist for years sitting there as, a, as an egg. Earlier this year, I actually had the opportunity to go to Sturt National Park where we've got an arid zone restoration project. And one of the lakes there had been um, filled for the first time in 10 years. And apparently a few weeks before I got there, it was absolutely crawling in, in tadpole shrimps. Um, so being an invertebrate nerd, I thought, I've got to see one of these. I've never seen a live one in the field. And so I went down to the lake at night and went up and down the, the shoreline and I saw precisely one dead one, which was a bit disappointing. Um, but that's another example, these tadpole shrimps that, that emerge out of the sediments and just have this massive boom and bust type scenario. Um, the other invertebrate that's famous for being able to be dried out and last for ages in a non, in sort of a non-living state are, of course, the tardigrades, which are like everyone's favourite invertebrate. You, again, if you want to look at in, internet memes for uh, crazy invertebrates, there's lots of tardigrade stuff. So you can freeze them, you can put them at quite high temperatures. You can zap them with a huge amount of UV radiation. They don't seem to mind. You can send them, I think they've been sent out to space and all sorts of, um, but they've got, again, they've got this incredible biology where they can just persist um, in, a, in a sort of dormant state. I actually don't, I don't know the cell biology and the biochemistry of how they do that, um, but obviously they can get rid of all the water in their tissues without breaking the, the cellular structures. Um, Hannah, uh, sorry we missed your question earlier. You had a question for Mark. Um, is there any way for local governments to try to prevent microplastics from entering the ecosystem through sewage facilities? Is anyone doing this? Yeah, so we're currently working with um, Melbourne Water and South Australia Water looking at that. Um, we've, we've just been analysing the data as we speak um, about what where they occur in those. There's some people in engineering who have meant making different types of membranes that they think might be able to do that. But then the argument is the cost-benefit analysis of retrofitting all of the sewage treatment processes in Australia with new membranes to collect them, or whether or not just to re-engineer the products, the appliances, the washing machines, or our clothes to stop them going in. And I think the water authorities are preferring that the engineering takes place elsewhere. Um, before they start changing them. But um, the, the issue that we have is that lots of the comparisons so far have been what's being in the standing stocks in different parts of the treatment process. And they've actually not done the experiments where they've actually added 
polymers to actually track where they go through, but trying to convince some large water treatment authorities to put several truckloads of polyester fibers that have sort of dyed a particular color doesn't really go down too well. So I think a lot of the time it's cost benefit and whether or not the engineering can take place elsewhere. Coincidentally, there was it was Hornsby Shire Council who actually allowed us to make the final connection with sewage being the main one of the main contributors for fibers going to the environment. It was a small grant from them on a grant called Itsy Bitsy Bits of Plastic in Stormwater and Sewage that allowed us to sample the outfalls from some treatment facilities that allowed that final piece. And now that's a whole field of research just in itself, just on fibres. But that was all came from a local council, Hornsby Shire Council. The other link I can think of to sort of combine this discussion around plastic back with crustaceans is that floating structures on the ocean um, support, you know, barnacles. So we were talking before about barnacles being stuck to rocks, but there's a whole, club, a whole group of barnacles called the stalked or goose barnacles that are really common on floating structures. So naturally they would occur on floating bits of wood or bits of, you know, volcanic rock that floats, pumice that floats around, um, but they'll quite readily attach to any artificial structures. So bits of you know plastic and boats and boys and all sorts of things um, so that's now of interest because it can be a vector for invasive species around the world so the plastics and the other bits of litter float around in the ocean currents but they're not sterile obviously they start to attract all the sorts of sessile invertebrates that that we've been looking on this course and in particular these uh, these barnacle groups and so then those animals uh, then get moved all around the world due to currents. And there's some nice examples of, you know, bits of material. Uh, actually, the recent prominent example was after the tsunami in Japan, there was all sorts of bits of material turning up on the west coast of the US. And when it did so, it was you know, people were able to study all of the marine organisms that had settled onto those, onto those plastics. Um, I have a colleague in, I've worked with a colleague in Chile who was interested in, in uh, where plastics come from and he would get his students to walk up and down the beach and pick up the bottles, um, then basically look at the brands of soft drink, you know, oh, look, it's a Korean brand, it's a Japanese brand, it's a, you know, it's a Brazilian brand. And you can get a sense from where these things are coming from just by looking at uh, the actual brands of plastic. Um, but they can absolutely be a, a, what's called a vector for invasive species, moving things around the world. Um, and then I don't know if you can also use those stalk barnacles as a forensic tool to try and understand how long things have been in the ocean. And so people, that would actually happen to people quite recently with some, you know, with shoes of a person who went missing. And like it's they're tragic stories, but you can, people can genuinely look at uh, the invertebrates that are on those objects to try and trace ocean currents and the time of things that have, that have been in the ocean. So Thomas, your demonstrator for this course, his honours was on those goose barnacles and he published um, some ageing methods to try and work out how things have been, how long things have been in the ocean. It's quite interesting, Alice, because a lot of forensic work, isn't it? They look at the invertebrate assemblages, but also the polymer assemblages on bodies to give an indication of how they might have died and where, you know, where those types of processes might occur. You know? And so it's quite interesting that you can combine that information 
about the taxonomy of particular organisms. Yeah, so you look at so for the barnacles, they'd look at you know what species it was, where they think it would have come from. They can also look at the, the sort of molecular composition of the shells to try and get a fingerprint of which ocean basin it might have come from as well. I know they they did that for the barnacles that turned up on that the, you know the missing plane, the MH370, when a piece of wing turned up um, that was covered in barnacles, and they tried to use the the isotopic signature of the you know barnacle material to work out where that might have originated from. So it's yeah, it's some pretty neat forensics you can do. But it's also it, the, the other message here is that if you fall anything that falls into the ocean is going to get invertebrates growing on it before you know it. You know, there's that much stuff out there. Thank you for listening to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology Series podcast. For any more information regarding the content in this course, please email me at tracy.ainsworth at unsw.edu.au.